All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. The title to our message this morning is The Staff That Became a Serpent That Swallowed the Curse. And as you're turning to Exodus 7, please remember that, that God's Word is called a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, you are the king over every heart. We pray that you would forbid our hearts from being hardened as Pharaoh was. But Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts, the eyes of our heart, that we might see the hope to which we have been called to. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, please be seated. I hope that you begin to recognize as we're going through the book of Exodus that the Exodus account is the most significant redemptive act of God in the entire ancient world. This sets the stage for the rest of the Old Testament. The Exodus is referenced hundreds of times throughout the Bible. It shapes everything about Israel. In fact, One author puts it like this. 
Who are you, Israel? Oh, we are the people of we are the people who got redeemed from Egypt. Who is God? He is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Exodus is the most significant redemptive act in the Old Testament. And yet, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus interprets the entire Exodus account as playing a subordinate role to the real story. Jesus said in John 5, 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. The Exodus, written by Moses, was ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is crystal clear in our passage this morning. So let's let's set the stage. Remember that chapter 6 ended with Moses confessing his sin in verse 30. We read, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And then God immediately answers that question in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, see or behold, I have made you like God, Elohim, to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. We know elsewhere in Scripture that civil magistrates are called gods, Elohim, because they carry God's authority in the nations. Yahweh is telling Moses here that he has nothing to worry about because he is now going to be God, lowercase g, over Pharaoh. He would command Pharaoh, he would punish Pharaoh's disobedience, and when Pharaoh pled for relief, he would plead to Moses. And Aaron was going to be the mediator between them, the prophet. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Moses' responsibility is simply to speak the word of the Lord. He has no other responsibility. Just speak the word. Verses 3 and 4. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God ordained that Pharaoh would not listen. He judicially hardened his heart so that God's great acts of deliverance would be all the more conspicuous. You would not know of the Exodus account today if God did not harden Pharaoh's heart and then multiply his wonders in the land of Egypt. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, remember, in Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? At the end of this account, God would make not only Pharaoh, but all of Egypt acknowledge that that Yahweh is God of all gods and Lord of all lords. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. This is a turning point for Moses. Before this moment, 
He was doubting, he was scared, he wanted out, and from this moment on, until they leave Egypt, he doesn't doubt the Lord one time. He is resolved, and him and Aaron give the message of the Lord precisely to Pharaoh. Verse 7, now Moses and 80, now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, why did God give this information? Why is this important? To exclude all human merit. No 80-year-old man is going to bring the most powerful king in the world to his knees. This is to make God's salvation be known that it is from the Lord alone. So in summary, in these first seven verses, we see that God recommissions Moses. He tells Moses, look, your job is simply to preach my word and my job is to do everything else. And what follows in this dramatic scene of the serpents is not only a preview of the entire Exodus account, but more importantly, it is a preview of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the staff that became a serpent that swallowed the curse. Three points to our message this morning. We're going to look at the poison, and then secondly, the serpent, and then thirdly, the swallowing. So let's look with me at verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Pharaoh here is not so much asking for Moses' credentials, but he is ultimately asking for evidence that Yahweh is really who he says he is. This is not at all an honest question. It's very much like the question that Pontius Pilate mockingly asked Jesus, truth, what is truth? Prove yourself is what Pharaoh is saying. Whenever the seed of the serpent is confronted with the God of the heavens, he always hisses out that unbelief against God. Prove yourself, God. I think the irony here of asking God for proof is that Pharaoh, just like every human being that has ever lived, has all the proof that they need. Um, David said, The heavens declare the glory of God. Every time we go out and look at the sun or the stars, they scream, God. The psalmist says that their voice goes throughout all the earth. There's no place on the earth where God's voice through creation is not heard. Job says in Job 12, 7 through 9, ask the beasts. Go ask your kitty cat. Go ask your dog. Go ask your chickens. They will teach you. The birds of the heavens, they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, they will teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. Paul appealed to the book of nature as well when he was preaching to the people of Lystra in Acts 14. He says that God did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, 
satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The rain and snow that we just got last night, that's a witness to the truth of the living God that he is a good and kind and generous God. The problem is never, ever a lack of proof. The Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 1, paragraph 1, the light of nature, the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness and the wisdom and the power of God so as to leave man inexcusable. No one will ever stand before God on the day of judgment and say, God, I just didn't have enough proof to believe in you. The problem is not proof. The problem is that fallen man has been poisoned by the serpent's venom. And that brings us then to our first principle this morning, that fallen man has been poisoned by sin so that he refuses to trust the Lord. Our first principle, fallen man has been poisoned by sin so that he refuses to trust the Lord. Pharaoh is ready to believe every single God in Egypt. But when the one true and living God reveals himself, he refuses to believe him. And this is what every fallen man does. In Acts chapter 14, the people of Lystra, Paul healed a crippled Man in their midst, in the name of Jesus, but they attributed the miracle to Zeus and Hermes. In Acts chapter 16, the people of Philippi, uh, Paul had cast out a demon from this little girl in the name of Jesus, and they refused to repent because they served mammon instead. Jesus, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he's living proof that, that God is true and, and who he says he is. And the Pharisees did not believe Jesus because they wanted, they served their own power and reputation. Pharaoh demands proof here, but in the end, like all of these others, he refused the very proof that was in front of him. Dear congregation, that's the chief poison. It's a, it's a distrust. It is a suspicion. It is a unbelief. It is a doubting the person of God, the heart of God. This is not an intellectual problem. Unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's a problem of the heart. Children, boys and girls... I wonder if you know the difference between an intellectual problem and a heart problem. Remember when you learn your math facts, um, two plus two equals four. That might be a while ago for some of you. But as you work through those, those sums, perhaps you got the answer wrong at first. Perhaps you, two plus two equals five, and then you were taught intellectually, no, one and one and one and one equal four. Did I do that right? Then you realize, okay, my intellectual problem is solved, but what if there's a little boy who says, no, two plus two equals five? 
And no matter how much you teach him, no matter how much time you spend with him, he insists that two plus two equals five. That's not an intellectual problem, is it? It's a heart problem. It's a problem of pride and stubbornness. He doesn't want to believe. Pharaoh had a heart problem. He was infected with the serpent's poison, and no matter how much proof he had, he would never believe. Sin makes people insane in the heart. Ecclesiastes 9.3, it says that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. That's what the serpent did to our first parents when they were in the garden. His first lie was designed to twist and bend and pervert our hearts towards God. So he basically laid out this choice before Eve, and he said, Eve, here's your choice. You can either obey God in not eating the forbidden fruit, or you can be happy in eating the fruit. But you can't be both. You can't both obey God and be happy. And that's precisely what the gods of Egypt had offered Pharaoh. If you serve us, you can be happy. But if you serve Yahweh, your happiness will disappear. Now, if you're here this morning and if you have not yet embraced Jesus Christ as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords, as the one who possesses you heart, soul, and mind, and I want to suggest to you that, that this is perhaps the lie that you're believing. You, you, you don't lack proof for God. You, you don't lack it. Your problem is, is, is not that you don't believe in miracles. In fact, as one author put it, those who deny the God of scriptures are the greatest believers in miracles because they see that the universe is a product of chance. They affirm that something came from nothing. If you don't believe in the God of the Scripture, you believe in greater miracles than what we see in this passage. Dear unbelieving friend, you don't need more proof. You need the poison removed. You need the God of all mercy, the God of all poison, to come into the throne of your heart and to suck the poison out, to, to remove your heart of stone, to give you a heart of flesh that you might love him and serve him. And this, at this point right here, this is precisely where the Christian worldview begins. It doesn't begin with what I can do for God, how I can be made right with God. It begins with what God must do for you. He must act first. You're, you're in a hopeless situation all by yourself. You're poisoned all the way down to the depth of your soul and your only hope your only hope is if God comes into the throne room of your heart and restores you and gives you life. Let's see how he does that. Let's see how he does that. Let's look at point two, the serpent. What does God tell Moses to do when Pharaoh asks for more proof? Halfway through verse 9. Then you shall say to Aaron, 
Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. First, I just want to deal with this issue of of the staff. Is this, is Aaron's staff here different than Moses' staff? Because notice it's Aaron's staff that got thrown down here. But, no, but the answer is no, it's, it's the same staff. Uh, God had already told Aaron back in chapter 4, verse 17, that all of the signs in Egypt will be done with the same staff. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do all the signs in Egypt. And this was the first sign done in Egypt with this staff. Sometimes the staff is called Aaron's, as in here, Exodus 7, 19, 8, 5, 8, 16, and sometimes it's called Moses' staff. But the one thing that's vital to remember is that this staff predominantly is called the staff of God. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, take the staff of God, which is in your hand. Secondly, I want us to see that this is indeed a great miracle. Some people discount the Bible because of stories like this and how foolish that is. The God who made the heavens and the earth by the word of his power, certainly taking a stick and making it into a snake, is the easiest thing in the world for him. The, question, the real question here is, why does he make it a serpent? Would this serpent be significant in some way to Pharaoh? Absolutely. Joel Beakey notes here, quote, snakes, serpents were feared in Egypt and used as symbols of power. The Pharaoh's own crown featured an upright cobra as a symbol of the patron goddess of Egypt who supposedly gave Pharaoh his power, end quote. It was the chief symbol of power in Egypt, and when Aaron threw down his staff and it became a serpent. God was proclaiming that I have the power over the serpent. I have the power over you. But there's a further significance of serpents from Scripture itself. The serpent is the one the chief adversary, the one who deceived Eve and caused the fall of humanity, Genesis 3, 1 through 5. And as a result, the serpent became the one creature under heaven that was cursed by God, Genesis 3, 14. And following from chapter 3 of Genesis, all manner of evil is continually identified with the serpent. Anger and violence is. Genesis 49, 17. Idolatry is identified with the serpent. Deuteronomy 32, 33. Drunkenness. Proverbs 23, 32. Impatience and grumbling. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Apostasy. 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3. Persecution. Revelation 12, 15. 
But not only is every evil identified with the serpent, every villain in scripture is identified with the serpent. All the reprobate are called the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. Wicked rulers, Psalm 58.4, they have venom like the venom of a serpent. Evil men, Psalm 140, verse 3, under the lips is the venom of asps. The Pharisees, Jesus said, Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. So the serpent is nearly universally recognized as a symbol of evil in Scripture. So then here is the question, why? Why in the world? Would God transform Aaron's staff, which is called the staff of God, the very manifestation of God on earth, into a serpent, which is the very manifestation of evil? Hopefully you can answer that question readily. It's because what happened in Pharaoh's court was a prefiguring of the gospel. Aaron cast down his staff, signifying God sending down his son. The staff became a serpent, signifying that the son would take on the curse. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. And that brings us then to our second principle. In order to cure mankind of the serpent's venom, which is sin, God's son came down as a serpent. In order to cure mankind of sin, God's son came down as a serpent. This is not the only place where salvation comes at the hands of a servant in Scripture. Turn with me, please, to Numbers chapter 21. This is after the Exodus and Israel is wandering in the wilderness. And we see salvation coming from a serpent here. In Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people were impatient on the way. Stop right there for a second. It's verses like these that are such a gut check, aren't they? How often are you impatient with your children, with your spouse, with with your home life, with your work? And what's going to follow here in this punishment came from impatience. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What was the food? What did manna represent? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
Boys and girls, if this story doesn't teach you that the Bible has one storyline, I don't know what story will. It's the same storyline throughout Scripture. Israel sins against the Lord. He brings the punishment of serpents against them. They pray for salvation, and God saves them through lifting a serpent up on a pole. And we know that this is the gospel because this is what John points to in John 3.14 when he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I think it's interesting the different type of animals that represent the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Passover lamb who takes over the sins, who t- takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers all of his enemies, Revelation 5, 5. Why is he represented as those animals? Because those things speak something about Jesus personally. As the lamb, he is spotless and innocent, a perfect sacrifice to God. As the lion, he is the sovereign king, right? Those animals make perfect sense. But the serpent doesn't make sense at all. The serpent is evil itself. He's wickedness itself. He's the cursed one of God. Why in the world would Jesus identify with the most cursed creature in all of creation? Because it is who we are. Because that's who we are. The lion and the lamb represent him, but the serpent represents us. In order for Jesus to rescue us, From the serpent, he had to become everything the serpent represents. When Jesus came down and went to the cross, Jesus became the greatest sinner in the world by imputation. He didn't actually sin. God charged all of our sin, all of the sin of all of the elect, Upon Jesus, there is no greater sinner by imputation than the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to the earth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And what does that sin look like? It looks like a snake, a serpent. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards puts it here. Sin, our spiritual disease in Scripture, is compared to the poison of a serpent. So Scripture represents the Messiah as set forth as a sinner, appearing in the form of sinners and of a great sinner. He was treated as the greatest of sinners, being brought forth in the form of a great sinner. He was, as it were, exhibited in the form of a very venomous serpent, according to the manner of representing things in Scripture, for there great sinners are represented as poisonous serpents. Beloved, do you see? This passage is 
is calling us to, to taste and see the loving kindness and goodness of God our Savior. Pharaoh, representing sinful man, tells God, prove yourself. And of course, God doesn't owe sinful man anything. He's already provided all the proof that he needs. But what does God do? He gives the greatest proof of all of his love for sinful man. He cast his son down to the earth. And his son didn't come in the form of some great dignitary. He didn't come as a as a politician or as a general of some great army or as a wealthy man. He doesn't even come as an ordinary man. He was cast down to the earth to become the greatest curse that ever has or ever will be. The Son of God became a curse to take away our curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became sin incarnate. Oh, that God would give us the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the height and length and breadth and depth of the love of God which surpasses all knowledge. No greater love could ever be conceived. You doubt, you ever doubt that God loves you? Look at this story. Look at the snake on the pole. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look to the sun serpent that God placed on a pole for you. Let's look then at our third point. The swallowing. How does Pharaoh react when he sees this staff become a serpent in front of him? Well, let's look at verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned his wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Verse 12, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. Now we actually know who these men are because Paul tells us what their names are in 2 Timothy 3, 8. Their names are Janus and Jambres. And Paul calls them out specifically because they typify all men who oppose the truth. Men of corrupted minds and disqualified regarding the faith. And here, Janus and Jambres, Pharaoh's sorcerers, they were practicing in the occult. Verse 11 says that they practiced secret arts. The Hebrew word here is the same from Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, to describe that flaming sword that the cherubim used to keep man out of the garden. So the secret arts here is the same thing as that flaming sword of the angels. In other words, Janus and Jambres were using demonic powers, the, the powers of fallen angels in order to conjure up this magic. 
This is not some sleight of hand, as some commentators seem to think. The narrative in no way suggests that these sorcerers were faking it. Furthermore, it doesn't fit with the flow. As one author notes, the conflict here is between the living God and the demonic powers which Egypt trusted in. The conflict wasn't between the living God and some cheap performer of parlor tricks. It was a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the serpent was employing all of his powers to win. So these staffs were actually turned into serpents. What we need to see here is that these sorcerers represent how counterfeit religion seeks to turn persons away from the true and living God. This happened in Paul's day. In Acts 13.8, Paul was preaching the word of God to the proconsul Sergius Paulus, and we read that Elimus, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That is the goal of all counterfeit religion to turn persons away from the faith. And the, the main method that they use is imitation. Just as Janus and Jambres were able to produce these serpents that looked like Aaron's serpents, so all counterfeit religion seeks to produce certain virtues that look like biblical Christianity. So for instance, Mormonism looks moral. Islam looks devout. New age looks spiritual. Postmodernism looks humble. Statism looks dependable. But in the end, all of these counterfeits are shown to be what they really are because none of them can deal with man's greatest problem, sin. Look what happens to these counterfeits at the end of verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. You ever... Certainly, you guys have seen that movie, The Prince of Egypt. You know, the, you're playing with the big boys now. Some of that's probably going in your head, right? Uh, the, only, the, the smallest portion is when the, you can see the shadows on the wall, right? And the serpent swallows the other two. That's the main point of this entire story. The Hebrew word here for swallowed up. It's the exact same word that's used in chapter 15, verse 12, to describe how Pharaoh and his army was swallowed up in the Red Sea. This is a foreshadowing of Yahweh's victory over Egypt. Just as Aaron's serpent swallowed up the serpents of Janus and Jambres, so Yahweh was going to swallow up Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Pharaoh was looking at his end right in front of him. God would drown his army and, and bring Israel to himself, to the mountain of God. And that those are always the two things that are happening in redemption. Exodus was a twofold act. One, God swallowed up Israel's enemies. And two, God 
brought Israel near to himself, just as he promised, I will be your God, you will be my people. And this helps us to understand the gospel even more clearly. Our third principle is this, that Christ swallows up our enemies and brings us into union with himself. Christ swallows up our enemies and brings us enemies into union with himself. Consider how he became a serpent for our sake. Consider all of the enemies that he swallowed up. First of all, Christ swallowed the devil. Christ swallowed the devil. Just as Aaron's staff had swallowed up those serpents, so Christ, when he was cast down to the earth, defeated the devil for us. Think about all the things that you can't defeat. You can't defeat growing old. You can't defeat frustration at work. How can you defeat the devil, the prince of darkness? It's something that you could never do. But Christ, when he became a serpent, he swallowed the devil up on the cross. In his cross work, he said in John 12, 31, that now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. That was the down payment. And at the end on the great day, Revelation 20, 10 says that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where he will be tormented day and night forever. Beloved, Christ has already devoured and will devour the greatest enemy of your soul. Secondly, Christ swallowed up all of our sin. He first swallowed the devil, and he secondly swallowed up all of our sin, just as Aaron's staff swallowed up these serpents, venom and all. So Christ swallowed up all the sin that has poisoned you. The venom of sin has reached to the very depths of our soul. But Christ, the serpent swallower, gulped it all down on the cross. Colossians 2, 14 says that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Child of God, your sin was devoured on the cross by the crimson red blood of the Lamb. You have no more debt in God's courtroom. You are innocent before him. Thirdly, Christ swallowed up death. Christ swallowed up death just as Aaron's staff had swallowed up those serpents which are symbols of death. So Christ has swallowed up death for us. Since the fall of mankind, No one has escaped death. Every one of us will die. I would encourage you, meditate on the day of your death. What will that look like? Will you be in a bed? Will you be in the hospital? Will you be laying on the side of the road? Meditate on the day of your death and look death in the eye. And know that just as those serpents were swallowed, Christ has swallowed death for you. 
Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Dear church, your, your future death has already died. Do you, you realize that death for you is a portal into everlasting life? You have nothing to fear. Fourthly, Christ swallowed the wrath of God. He swallowed up the wrath of God just as those serpents swallowed up the curse. So Christ swallowed up the curse and wrath of God. There is nothing more terrifying than the wrath of God. Death is not as terrifying as the wrath of God. The reason why people are afraid of death is because they're terrified at the wrath of God. That's why they're terrified. Uh, Isaiah 33, 14 says, The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling as seas the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? But dear saint, you have nothing to be afraid of. Every last drop of wrath was gulped up by the serpent's son. He drank that cup of wrath all the way down to its very dregs. You will never face the wrath of God, ever. But the last thing that Jesus gulped up is the most delightful gospel truth of all, of every one of them. Just as Aaron's staff swallowed up those serpents and they became his food, so Christ made us his food. Christ swallowed us up. He brought us into union with himself by cobbling us up. Jonathan Edwards says here, Christ destroyed sin and the devil and so swallowed up the serpents in that sense. And so he receives and embraces sinners that in themselves are serpents by his love and grace so that they became, as it were, his pleasant food. And so he swallowed down serpents. This is the most delightful truth of the passage that, that dear Christian, dear man of God, dear woman of God, dear child of God, you have been brought into union with Christ. You're now inseparable from him. You're, you're no longer a, a person um, on your own. You, you and Christ are joined together. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This, this is actually the gospel offer. It's Christ himself. All of the other things that, that the serpent's son swallowed, he did so in order to take away every single obstacle out of the way so that he could have you. Christ wants you, loved ones. It's, it's hard to believe, I know. It's hard to believe that, that he, he swallowed up the devil, that he swallowed up sin, that he swallowed up death, that he swallowed up the wrath of God, that he did all these magnificent things. He did all of these things so that he could be in union with you. And that's the main treasure of the gospel. The greatest truth is that you have become Christ's pleasant food. 
You're now one with him and he is one with you. Never to be separated again. Never to be apart again. You are his prize and he is yours. The staff that became a serpent that swallowed the curse all happened so that you could be united to Christ forever and ever, world without Let's pray. Oh God, your word gets better and better and better every time we look at it. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments, how inscrutable your ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever.